Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to Psalm 81? Or the text is printed on page 10 in your bulletin. I'm going to talk about this psalm for a couple of weeks. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, Psalm of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it's a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their, to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, move in us now by the Spirit as we hear this word. Transform us from glory to glory. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Well, you guys know that there are parts of the Bible that are really quite a lot of hard work to, to, to understand. You know, they're tough to read, tough to kind of get into and really know what's going on. It's good work, but, it, but it's hard work. But I think one part of the Bible where that's not quite so true is the Psalms. I find that people, even when they kind of struggle in other parts of the Bible, they are drawn to the Psalms because they, they're easily relatable to us. The, the Psalms give voice to a lot of stuff that we recognize in our own hearts. You know, sorrows and joys, desires and fears. And it's, it's very human, very, very easy to kind of feel with these writers. But some years ago, someone pointed something out to me that, for me, was like a key turning in a lock. And it just swung open these, these big doors on this, the book of Psalms. It opened up just some wild new dimensions for me. And basically, the idea was that you, you guys can see in your Bibles, there are five books. You notice that? There are five books of the Psalms. That actually is not just some weird random thing. Those books are set up in a very particular way. And within each of the five books, there's kind of development of some big themes and then from book to book, there's development of big themes as well. And we are right now in Psalm 81. We are in book three of the book of Psalms. There are 17 Psalms in this book three. And it is, I would say, without, it's very much the darkest of the five books of the Psalms. And this book three wrestles from beginning to end with a major problem. And what I want to do is I want to read you just a couple verses from the first book, from the first Psalm in book three. And from the last psalm in book three, and I want you to tell me if you can tell what this major problem is. So from the opening psalm of the book, the psalmist says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped 
because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And from the other end of book three, the psalmist is talking to God and he says, you've sworn to David, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. But now you've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And so the major problem that book three, you can see, is wrestling with is why is evil winning? Why is evil winning? Why was it seemingly just all downhill in Israel's history after David and maybe early Solomon, who was really quite impressive? But then it just seemed like it went all downhill. Why is it that in Israel, this one nation on earth where God is at work, the wicked prevailed in Israel so that now the wicked are prevailing over Israel? Right, So Israel became so wicked within, led by her kings and priests and prophets even, that eventually these wicked pagan powers are now dominating Israel. The, the, the book three was composed probably in the exile, the Babylonian exile. And I wonder if you can relate to that, that question. Why, why is evil winning? Why is evil winning? Why does it seem sometimes, whether we look at our kind of own struggles with our own sins, or we look around at the people of God, it can just feel like, man, we are just, we're a mess. We're supposed to be God's people in the world, and there's just such big problems. And sometimes God's enemies are having a field day because of things that are just so out of whack in the body of Christ, in the church, in my own heart and soul. Why is evil so prevalent? And sometimes it seems like it's just sweeping everything before it. Well, Psalm 81 is the fifth in a little mini-series of seven psalms in book three that go searching for some answers, searching for some hope in Israel's history to try to get to this, find an answer to this problem. Why is evil winning? And what surfaces in Psalm 81 is a painful but very illuminating memory from Israel's story. The central image of the psalm is there in verse 10, and it's really remarkable God wants to feed his people. He wants to bless them. He wants to do good to them. Open your mouth wide, and they will not open their mouths. They will not open their mouth. And the not-so-subtle hint in this psalm, now being read by these exiles centuries later, the not-so-subtle so hint in this psalm is that that was not a one-off one thing. God wanting to bless his people, and they won't open their mouths. Now, to get at this, I just want to start with the setting of the psalm, the setting in which this psalm was to be read and, and, and this story was to be remembered. And it was a particular feast. Now, the, 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 the author of the psalm is this guy named Asaph, and he is a contemporary of King David. He's one of the Levites that David appointed to eventually um, kind of work in the temple in a particular way after Solomon built it. And so, he, you know, Asaph's writing Psalm 81. And this is a long time after the exodus from Egypt and the wilderness, which is what this psalm mostly talks about. So the psalm's talking about the exodus and, and some things that happened in the wilderness after that. But now it's being written by a guy who's in the time of David and already looking forward to the time of Solomon. So it's interesting to think about the, the, the difference in this time. This is a settled time. This is not a wandering time. This is a settled time. This is not a bunch of slaves who now are basically living with the clothes on their back in the wilderness. This is a prosperous time. David's a great king. And he's setting up a great kingdom, and Solomon takes it to, you know, just 
awesome heights. And, and Asaph writes this psalm in this settled, prosperous time for a particular feast in Israel's yearly calendar. You can read more about this in, in Leviticus 23 if you'd like. There's kind of a funny little phrase in verse 3. We're supposed to blow the trumpet at the new moon at the full moon. Now, if you've ever looked at a monthly calendar, you know those are not the same. The new moon is exactly sort of the opposite of the full moon, right? It's the, it's the, you know, the, the, the most waned time of the moon and the most waxed time of the moon. But the reason is because these two dates are tied together in Israel's calendar because on the first day of the seventh month, which was the new moon, there was to be a blowing of trumpets. Asaph talks about that here. And then on the tenth of the month, so nine days later, was the Day of Atonement. We know it now as Yom Kippur. And on the 15th day of the month, which as you know your monthly calendar would be the full moon, that was the beginning of something called the Feast of Booths. And this was kind of a cool, a cool feast because for seven days all Israel was to live in tents. They were to camp for seven days and they were to wave palm branches and kind of have a festive time. And they were to remember that they lived in booths in the wilderness. You guys maybe seen the Hasidim do this in the city. You know, they drive around these temporary trucks and they sit in their temporary shelters remembering you know, the, 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 it's their Feast of Booths. Now, what was the point of the Feast of Booths? Well, the lesson of Booths, the lesson of this week in later prosperous times, because we're far from the wilderness now, the lesson in these later good times was, Israel, you're blessed. It was not always thus. It was not always thus. At the end of Leviticus 43, God says, I want you to celebrate this Feast of Booths and listen to why he says he wants them to do it, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths or tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so what God wants his people to do every year, he wants them to remember together that after a great salvation, after an awesome experience of being saved from Pharaoh and from the Red Sea, there were trying times. There were some trying times. There were 40 years in tents totally cast upon God. You know, you think about that wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness. I'd love to see you all try to endure 40 years wandering around a wilderness. Because, you know, here they are with all the livestock, too. I mean, and there's, there's nothing. The wilderness, there's no, there, there's no fast food out. There's nothing. I, there is rock and sand. 40 years, people. And sometimes there would be provision made before they got to the need. Like sometimes God would go ahead of them and he'd have provision ready when they got there so they wouldn't ever experience need. But, you know, a lot of times there was need before there was provision. There was hardship. There was peril. And God had not yet provided. And those provisions didn't always come immediately. And they just kept running into situation after situation where once again, we are, we got nothing. We have to rely upon God. And God says, I want you to just remember that. Every year, no matter how good times get, you remember, it was not always thus, the Feast of Booths. That's the setting. Now, as an example of that life, let's look at the story in the Psalms. We've looked at the setting of the Psalm, the Feast of Booths. Now, I just want you to notice the story in the Psalm, because Asaph, at this you know, Feast of Booths, kind of celebratory time, remembering, he says, I want you to remember something in particular. There's one thing in Israel's history I want you to, out in the wilderness, I want you guys to particularly call to mind. So here we have, we have the story. You know, as Israel is sitting in their tents, remembering, Asaph says, I want you guys to recall a very particular instance. I want you to remember the waters of Meribah. The waters of Meribah, verse 7. What was this? Well, after this extraordinary drama of the Exodus, 
You see it there in verse 6. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. You're not carrying these baskets of bricks anymore to build Pharaoh's cities. And then there was a deliverance at the Red Sea in the beginning of verse 7. In distress you called because Pharaoh's coming down on you with his army. And I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder as he thunders from heaven against Pharaoh and overthrows him in the Red Sea. And then very quickly, there's a test. So the great deliverance, Exodus, Red Sea, very quickly there's a test. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And this really did come very quickly. If you look back at the actual uh, timeline in the book of Exodus, this all did happen very quickly. So you guys remember the, the singing and dancing uh, on the far side of the Red Sea, you know, yay, God overthrew Pharaoh, hooray, our God is awesome. That's Exodus 15. You don't even get out of Exodus 15 and all that singing and dancing. Three days later, they get to a place where the water is so bitter you can't drink it. And so Moses throws a piece of wood in the water and makes it sweet. And then a few weeks later, in Exodus 16, they run out of food because you can only carry so much food out of Egypt, right? So we're, we're not even, we're only, to, we're, we're one chapter further along. Exodus 16, there's no food. What does God do? Manna, bread from heaven. And then it's not long after that, we are no further than Exodus 17. They come to a place where it's not bitter water, there's just no water. There is no water. They have gone as far as they can go. Night is falling. There is no water. Now, you'd think by now Israel would know God can handle water. You'd think. God has arranged this, he says. I tested you in the parched place at the waters of Meribah to see how Israel will respond. Selah. It's the only place that word appears in the psalm, and it basically just means pause. I tested you with the waters of Meribah. Selah. So in this story, how does Israel respond to the test? Yeah, it's not awesome. Basically, if you look back in Exodus 17, they say to Moses, so why exactly did you bring all of us out here to kill us in the wilderness? And our kids. And our cattle. Moses. There, there's kind of some layers in that question. Why'd you bring us out here to kill us? One is, you know, just sort of the obvious. Moses, this is not what we signed up for. You remember the whole milk and honey thing? You remember we're free from Pharaoh. Things are good. Life is easy now. We get to go have fun. We get to be rich and, and blessed and prosperous. And this is not what we signed up for. We are, we, are, we are not seeing milk and honey. In fact, we're not even seeing water. So this looks like we just, you know, it feels like we kind of, this is not what we were expecting, and it's, it starts to get deeper very quickly because you can feel in that question, it's sort of like, so is God some kind of cruel prankster? You know, is this, is this, his, is this his idea of a joke somehow, a game? You know, you, you get everyone hyped up, they're going to be free from slavery, life's going to get better, and then you bring them out and you just, you know, leave them to, to die of thirst? Moses calls this place Meribah. The Hebrew word means quarreling. And we're told why he named it quarreling. In Exodus 17, 7, we're told it's because Israel tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So God is testing his people. And the result of the testing is that they test the Lord. They turn the question around. Is God among us or not? Do you ever ask that question? Do you ever look at your life and say, is God here or not? Do you ever look at things going on in the body of Christ and say, is the Lord among us or not? Do you ever look at things happening in the world and say, is the Lord among us 
or is he not? I do. Because we all want the land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the thing. In our mind, beloved, the land of milk and honey, that's where God's among us. That's where God's among us. That's where God is. That's what God's love looks like. If God cares about you, it looks like milk and honey. It looks like wine and oil. That's what life is like when God is with you. You're blessed. You don't have pain. You don't have anguish. You don't have loss. You don't have suffering and, and constant trials and struggles and obstructions. And, and, and the enemies of God do not triumph when God is with you. You know, God's over there on the other side of the Red Sea where we're all singing and dancing. He's not over here when Pharaoh's bearing down on us. God's over there in Canaan where the milk and honey are. He's not here in this waterless waste. Is God among us? It wouldn't be a question if things were good. It's a question for you because things are bad. God says, I tested you. In the place of need. In the place of pain. In the place of peril. In the place of dependence. In the place of waiting. In that yawning, seemingly endless gap between what God has promised and what he has not yet provided, where all you have is God. I tested you. I tested you. Well, tested us for what? What does God want? Verse 10 tells us, open your mouth wide. Open your mouth wide. And I will fill it. Which returns our focus to the Selah. So we looked at the setting, the feast, the story, the waters of Meribah. Let's now, just for a moment, think about this Selah, this pause in the psalm. I tested you with the waters of Meribah, Selah. What is Asaph's audience supposed to do with this psalm? Living in David's time, Solomon's time. Well, the reason is that the reason Israel needs to sit in their tents once a year and just think long and hard about this story about the waters of Meribah is that that gap between God's promise and the provision he has not yet provided, that gap, that chasm, those hardships, those trying times, they didn't vanish with the wilderness, did they? That, that, that was not like a wilderness thing. It didn't stop there. Because when Israel got into the land, and here they are, and it's, it's a great land. I mean, it's flowing with milk and honey, and God conquers the enemy cities for them and brings them in, and it's good, it's wonderful, and you know what? There's still need. There's still peril. They are still dependent upon God at their most prosperous. In fact, even under David and Solomon, this is peak prosperity. It is so good that sometimes the chroniclers, chroniclers of Israel in those years would write these words, and Yahweh has fulfilled all of his promises. There are moments under David and Solomon where the writer of Israel's history would look around and say, everything God promised to Abraham, look, it's actually happening. This is like peak prosperity. And even at peak prosperity, the reality was there were still serpents prowling this Eden. Hearts were still wicked and deceitful. Riches certainly still make themselves wings and fly away. Nations still rage. And the heathen devise a vain, empty thing. And Israel was no less dependent upon God in that peak prosperity than at parched Meribah. You still, they still, need God. And what does God want? 
for Asaph's audience. Even surrounded by their prosperity as they sit at the Feast of Booths, God is saying to them once again, open your mouths wide and I will fill it. Well, what about the exiles? So Asaph writes the psalm. It's many years later in the time of the exile in Babylon that this book is composed and the Psalter in its finished form is finally assembled. And now Israel is really, really, they're in dark times now, worse than the, worse than the wilderness, you'd have to say. Because having refused to listen, I mean, God says in verse 8, well, Israel, if you would just listen to me, just listen to me, but they won't. And they go after, verse 9, strange gods. There shall be no strange god among you, but there is. You shall not bow down to a foreign god, but they do. And having turned away from God and turned to foreign gods, they're now reaping the whirlwind of judgment. God is bringing his wrath upon them, and this is a dark time. This is a time of terrible judgment. They have been led into exile and captivity. They are suffering in just almost unimaginable ways. And once again, in times of terrible judgment, when God is either bringing judgment on my sins or on the sins of others, and I'm just part of this community and I'm experiencing God's judgment because I'm part of this community, what does God want? I tested you. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. You think about Daniel and Esther, and later Nehemiah in that exile context. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Now, what about us? Because now we move on millennia. And we're after the Messiah. We're after Jesus. We are after the resurrection of the Son of God. We are after his ascension to reign at the Father's right hand. But the reality for us today, you know, May 2022, is that even with the serpent crushed, even with Christ on the throne of the universe, and he is, beloved, there are still trying times. There is still need. There is still peril. There are still perplexities. There is still pain. There is still loss. You know this. And you and I find ourselves at times in parched, parched, waterless places and I've been there I know you've been there and you say to yourself as you're talking before the Lord you say God you have promised for me some of the hardest conversations with God are when I'm looking at the Bible and I'm saying God you have said that this is your stated will I mean it's one thing if I'm off here running around you know seeking Ben Miller's will but I'm looking at your word and your word says this is your will and this is what you bless and this is where your heart is and I'm after that, Lord, and I'm seeing other people after that. And, you know, these seem like things that, you know, that you care about justice, you care about righteousness and, 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 and love and, and goodness and peace and, 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 and like, we're, we're seeking what you say you love and, and, and what you value, Lord. And instead, instead, of what you've promised instead of what you've said is your will. You say you've made us for life and we die. You say you've made us for joy, God, and peace and wholeness. And instead there's sorrow and there's suffering. You say you want people to be virtuous. Why aren't they? You say you want relationships to be full of love, but instead, you say the body of Christ is supposed to grow and mature. God, I mean, let's just start with your people. Your people, where your spirit's working. You say this is, and instead, 
Is it not your will, Lord, that the wise should be heard, the righteous should rule, the innocent should be vindicated, the humble should be exalted? Justice should roll down like waters. History should just unfold steadily toward the shalom of God. Isn't this your plan, Lord? But instead, and there are moments, dark moments, sometimes when you're wrestling with God in prayer where you say, God, I'm not making up what you said. I'm not making it up. I'm reading it. I'm reading it right here. What, what, am, I, what am I missing? I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Will you trust your God and wait for him? If you guys are anything like me, you've got about as much faith as you've got water. Will you trust your God and wait for him? You know, the Meribah generation was not the last to go wrong at the crossroads of testing. We wrestle with this too. And there are, there are two ways to go wrong at the waters of Meribah. There are really two sides of the same coin. One is I, I can take my thirst elsewhere. I can. Instead of opening my mouth wide and waiting for God to fill. I can take my thirst elsewhere, you know. I can, I can go find a God whose will for my life mirrors my will for my life. You know, find a God who's more like Ben Miller, sees things more like Ben Miller, and kind of worship and trust myself to that God. Or I can just take things into my own hands, you know, in those dark, parched places. I'm going to go find some water, blast it. I'm going to go pursue my dreamed best life. I know what's best for Ben. I'm just going to go after that. I'm going to refuse to let anything stand in my way. I will not accept these circumstances. I will not accept these people. I will not accept whatever it is. I'm just, I, I know what I want. I know what's best. I'm going to go after it, get out of my way. You know, it's interesting. This is a kind of spiritual anorexia when you think about it. Because for the anorexic, there is this fixation on my own projection of my best me. That's the best me. And I get fixated on it, and I actually can become blind to how distorted and even destructive that thing that I'm fixated on, that vision of my best me, how ruinous it actually is. And I will not let go of it, even if it leads to starvation and death. Can you imagine being so blind that you could actually say these words, it was better for us to be in Egypt? Beloved, do you realize that's what we can come to? We can actually say it would be better to be a slave of Pharaoh than serve the living and true God. That's the end of that road. You can take your thirst elsewhere. There's another way we can go wrong at the waters of Meribah. It's pretty much a flip side of the same coin. Instead of trying to take your thirst elsewhere, you can just try to kill your thirst. You know, there can be this kind of stoic ideal that I just kind of get myself to a place where I don't feel any need, I don't want anything, and so I can't be disappointed. You know, stoicism is not submission. It is one thing to open my mouth wide before a God whose work I don't always understand and submit to whatever it is he ordains. I'm going to stand here with my mouth open. I'm going to open my mouth wide and wait for God. It is quite a different thing to shut my mouth, numb out, just get lost in diversions, harden my heart, cauterize my soul, retreat behind these kind of self-protective walls where not even God can hurt me. Not even God can cause me pain. That's not submission. 
In fact, that too, in its own way, is about control. It is another form of spiritual anorexia. I'll just kill desire, starve my desire, live without, get hard. That too is a way of just not entrusting myself totally to this one who brought me out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under slavery to the serpent. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. We can transpose this into a Pauline key, the words of the Apostle Paul. It's really the exact same thing. If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, if God gave you and me the greater exodus, if God crushed the serpent for you, if God freed you from slavery to the powers of darkness and from your situation under his righteous judgment, and he, he, he drew you out of that, and he paid the price for you to be free and to be his, if God did all of that, Paul says, how will he not, with Jesus, give us everything else? So what does it look like in Christ? Open your mouth. It means you trust, you trust God's promises, beloved. You keep trusting them. Even if you never see them come true, you keep trusting them. You do your duty because you trust him. You accept God's providence, whatever God ordains for you. You accept it with patience. You accept it sometimes with endurance. You wait. And you receive God's good gifts to you that he has given you. Because along the way, if you're fixated on kind of like your best life, you can miss the fact that God is giving things to you. There's good here along the way. Even when you're waiting, there, there was goodness even when they were sitting there at the waters of Meribah. And receive those gifts that God has already given with joy and thankfulness. And you wait for God with an open mouth. This is vulnerable. This is like a little baby bird just sitting there. Open your mouth wide. And I will fill it. Because I gave you Christ. You know, and speaking of Christ, it's just really worth thinking about this from time to time. Who would have thought that God would destroy evil by killing his righteous son for the sins of his enemies? So that you and I could be forgiven and freed and then join his resurrected son as heirs and rulers of his world. Like, who would have thought God would do that? And that's worth thinking about because, you know, brothers and sisters, if you and I are not prepared for God to bless us in ways that are counterintuitive, if we're not prepared for God to bring some gold out of really hot fire, if we're not prepared for God to pursue our blessedness and our prosperity through things that seem like he's killing us a little bit, that seem like the absolute opposite of what an obviously good father would do, we actually have a problem at the very heart of our Christian faith. Because I would have never picked the Jesus way to destroy evil in the world. It's so counterintuitive what humans and Satan and the powers of darkness meant for evil, for God to bring good out of that. And so we'll talk more next week. But I just want to encourage you as we meditate on this psalm. Look to Christ. Repent of your unbelief. Open your mouth wide to what God has given you and to what he will yet give because he's promised and in ways that will constantly surprise you but will never, ever disappoint you. God will fill it. He will fill it. Amen. And so give us your peace, our God. In Jesus' good name.